thank you for joining us for A Journey Through Aussie Pop, the podcast that takes a trip back through the careers of landmark artists in Australian pop music history. I'm Gavin Scott from chartbeats.com.au. And I'm Robbie Molinari from Joy 94.9's disco and dance music show, Turn the Beat Around. Hello, Robbie. Now, as well as those landmark artists we've spoken to, along the way, we've covered some big landmark years. You know, those years where there was a big influx of Aussie pop actors. 1991 to 1992 was one such period with Euphoria, Tony Perrin, Girlfriend, Melissa. The list goes on. We've spoken to all of them. I hear you, Gavin. And almost a decade earlier, the new wave synth-pop explosion infiltrated the Australian music scene with bands like Pseudo Echo, Real Life, Machinations, and the band we'll talk about in this episode, Kids in the Kitchen. Yes, back in 1983. And in that year, this was Kids in the Kitchen's debut single, top 10 hit, Change in Mood. a bit of 80s synth pop. Now we're going to be hearing from Kids in the Kitchen's singer Scott Kahn and original and present drummer Bruce Kernow in this episode. And when the group came together in Melbourne in the early 80s, there were three other members in the band. Completing the original lineup of Kids in the Kitchen were Greg Dorman on guitar, Craig Harneth on bass and the late Greg Woodhead on keyboard. The boys were originally from all parts of Victoria but came together in Melbourne and formed the band. Let's go to our first part of the interview to hear about how the five-piece came together, how they developed their synth-influenced sound and were soon playing gigs. Scott, you were friends with Greg Dorman, I believe, and you two got the ball rolling on Kids in the Kitchen, didn't you? I met Greg at TAFE, at Box Hill TAFE, and we were doing drama media together. I left home at quite a young age, like most of us did, and I think I was about, about 16 and a half or something. I met up Greg. You know, we had a bit of a band going at one stage, but um, Greg went down to the local music store, I think it was, in Seaford, and um, did the old look on the wall for, you know, some band members. And um, you can fill in here, Bruce. Greg was, was from Ballarat and had moved down to – the family had moved to Mornington and yeah. he was uh, he was in a band in Ballarat, and then that wasn't going to work out. So he went into the music shop down in Seaford and said, "Hey, I've just moved down here. I'm a bass player looking for a band to join." Greg was standing there and goes, "I am." And Craig, being Craig, grabbed him by the collar and "Beauty, come with me." Chucked him in the car, and away they went. So right place at the right time. Yeah, Craig. He was at Melbourne Uni doing Bachelor of Genetics, and I was there doing a whole lot of not much and through mutual friends we met and it turns out his uh, girlfriend at the time was from up my way near Mildura and I sort of knew her vaguely, met him at college and I was uh, in his lounge room one day and he pulled out the Duke magazine, which was the sort of uh, muso trade paper of the time, looking for a drummer and I went, oh, yeah, I can play drums and, uh, yeah, really? Yeah, a little bit. You got a drum kit? Yeah. Can you get it here? Yeah. And the next thing uh, was me ringing my dad to get him to send the drum kit down on the train. And a couple of weeks later, we had a jam in North Melbourne. And that's where I met Scott and Greg. And that's the first time we all played together. 
And how, like, seriously were you taking the whole band thing? Was it like, yeah, we want to be a band, this is what we want to do, or was it, like, just mucking around at at the start? Well, for for me, it was something we were doing on a Sunday afternoon, afternoon, getting together and having a jam and a laugh and a carry on, and it never passed my mind that it would be more than that. We were learning our own songs because it was easier to do that than learn covers or anything, and I think it was Greg... By this stage, we had Greg Woodhead in the band, and they were saying, I can get us a gig. And I'm like, what are you talking about? A gig? We don't have enough to do a gig? And it's like, yeah, yeah, we can get this gig. Okay, so I hang back and we did the gig, and it was all our mates from college turned up. Yeah, it was a, cha- it was a champion hotel. Champion hotel in Brunswick. And then they invited us back to play a couple of weeks later and we did that and all our mates turned up and then some of these other people that we didn't know that were there. So on it went from there. You know, we were unconventional songwriters. We were just kind of, as Bruce said, we were just kind of pissing in the wind a bit, not knowing what we had or what how we go about it. And um, the scene in Australia at that stage was um, the post-punk stuff with the electro side of it was starting to kind of come in, you know, and hence Greg Woodhead, the first keyboard player, couldn't play a thing but bought a keyboard and then, became a player and worked it out as he went along. One finger playing and then kind of got into some basic chords and that kind of thing. And um, we were lucky. We just all had this great chemistry and that's what bands are about. No one in their own right was particularly great, better than anyone else. It was just the fact that when we got together and played, you know, we created this magic and... We had a lot of fun. Yeah, that's right. It wasn't to the first couple of gigs that we got swooped up really quick. Like we just seemed to have, wow, this reaction is beyond our friend's first gig at the Champion Hotel and, and it's moving pretty quick. We just had no concept that we had anything and all these bands that were around Melbourne, you know, they'd been out there and doing the hard yards and we come along had no concept of earning your place in amongst the bands. We just like didn't give a shit about that, just wanted to play. You know, we, we stood out, really stood out because... I used to call it the swamp music. There was bands that just sort of grungy nothing and we come out playing dance music. So we stood out. Big change from kind of pub rock. You know, the Angels are still out there grunting along and stuff like that, but a lot of those rock bands were kind of diminishing and had to kind of change with the times and that's I guess that's why we fit the bill. But, you know, Craig was great too because Craig was – wasn't Craig writing for the University Magazine, Bruce? And he, and he got lo- used to get loads of records. Yeah. He um, was trying to expand his record collection and he was an avid listener to a lot of different things and he um, figured that if he wrote a few reviews, for, uh, record reviews for the magazine, record companies might send him records. So it was – Firstly, about getting free records. So Craig would bring back these swags of records and put cassettes in together on, record those records on the cassettes and give them to Greg and myself and Bruce, obviously. And, um, and you know, there'd be things like Chic, one of Chic's disco records, and uh, aside from Duran Duran and Cocteau Twins and things like that, there was loads of other acts. And so that was a big part of our development too, listening to that music, because keep in mind that it was fairly kind of a Stone Age version of like radio back then. Craig was a big part of our um, our music development, I guess, or inspiration. This is all happening in the space of a couple of years, you know, that gone from listening to Led Zeppelin to sh- listening to Chic and stuff and Japan were a big influence too, and, and then bang, we're writing these songs. And the great thing about the 80s and the music style is that everyone was the same. 
whether it's Duran Duran or um, Simple Minds or any of those English bands coming out of that scene, um, the new romantic scene, they were all pretty average players but became something as they got out of the starting gate. Did you write as a band? Was it a, a group process or did different people do different parts? How did that work? Yeah, pretty much when we were, you know, the first year or so when we were just jamming together for fun on a Sunday, we'd have ideas for songs and they were developed with the group of us. We would often um, come up with the music first and then Scott would get his uh, little recorder out and he'd come back next week and he had a few ideas Maybe there was no lyrics yet, but he'd be worked on a melody and then he'd go away and he'd come back with some lyrics. And so all the lyrics and the melodies for the vocals were all Scott. But the rest of us were sort of, we were piecing the songs together in the room together all the time. And if uh, we were working on a song, Scott would be humming away in the corner and we'd work something out and away we'd go. We weren't kind of down, going down that rabbit hole. A lot of people do go with music's 50% and then the lyrics are 50% and all that stuff. You know, it's like we developed this music together and so it was only fair we got an equal share together. And where did the name Kids in the Kitchen come from? That first time we got together, uh, the first couple of times actually, was in Craig's lounge room in North Melbourne. Next to the kitchen, yeah. He was had a share house. We were writing songs and one of the songs we wrote which was pre, you know, very early, of course. This is like our first jam from my memory. And um, we wrote this thing and thought, wouldn't it be great if we had a percussion section here? And so out came the pots and pans. That's right. The beat remains the same, wasn't it? That was the song. That's the one. Didn't ever, never re- uh, made the album or anything, but one of Craig's share house mates came in and was like, oh, look at you guys, the boys in the kitchen. And then it was like, oh, kids in the kitchen. And Craig was straight on it. That'll do for a name if we ever get a gig. And if you've ever worked in any bands, the thing that you'll argue over the most is the name of the band. And no one really gave much of a shit. It was just like, oh, that'll do for now. We'll think of something better later. Yeah, that's right. We'll think of something better later. That was the thing. I didn't really like the name at the start, but it actually did us some favours, I believe, you know, with a lot of the it became a name you remembered. And actually the oldies kind of liked it. They kind of got it. They thought it was quite funny. But I like the bands, you know, names with names like Human League or Duran Duran, some kind of hipper or some kind of – but the Kids in the Kitchen, I thought, oh, God, are we gonna, how are we going to grow old with this? But um, we have. <laughs> with everything falling into place for Kids in the Kitchen, it didn't take long for them to attract the attention of record companies eager to snag themselves a synth-pop band of their own. The band signed with White Label Records, a Mushroom Records imprint run by Neil Bradbury, who would later manage Kids in the Kitchen, and Changing Mood was released as their debut single in October 1983, reaching number 10 on the then-recently-launched Aria chart. Yeah, I've always liked Changing Mood. It was a strong debut, and it diverged from the pure synth-pop of Real Life or Pseudo Echo by being a bit more atmospheric. Scott references Simple Minds and Japan, and I can hear that. I'd also throw in Ultravox. While I thought Send Me an Angel and Listening felt more in line with things like Don't You Want Me by The Human League or Depeche Mode's Just Can't Get Enough, they were more buoyant. Let's go back to Scott and Bruce to hear about the record deal and their debut single, Coming Together. Obviously, Real Life had Send Me an Angel, okay? And so that was smashing up the charts. So there was that look for, um, for the, next, the next act. So, yeah, it became a bit of a bidding war, didn't it, therefore? We had a few labels after us at one stage, but 
from what I remember, Bruce, uh, we kind of think we went mushroom for some reason. I don't know. I don't know why, but we did. But you know, mushroom were a good, pretty kind of hands-on label back then. You know, they were somewhat nurturing. I thought you got to remember that it was a different time, and anyone who had a band, record companies were given a go, even as a single deal. See what had happened, and. Um, we uh, were approached by Mushroom first and they were very keen to see us. And, and I remember we were impressed that with uh, Hunters and Collectors of the time and they were on White Label and had a different kind of deal and we thought that would be cool. So we went on White Label rather than Mushroom. End of the day, it's the same thing. Okay, so Changing Mood, debut single, what's the story behind that song? We did pick it for ourselves. When the record company were interested in us, they gave us a, a night in the uh, studio at Richmond Recorders to see how it had come out. But prior to that, when we actually wrote the song, I can remember Craig saying, this will be our first single. And I'm like, yeah, whatever. So it was it was just in our minds, always going to be the first single. It was sort of like a, a, a demo of a demo. So they were trying to see how we'd cope in the studio. Which was a bit of a disastrous experience from my standpoint. I had a big night the night before as, as I did these stupid things and I was pretty gone by the time I kind of got into the studio, so I was a bit tired and emotional. And so we did this session. All, you know, we had to go at midnight though. Fuck. It was a really tired demo. You know, when you start doing a demo at midnight and you're singing through all your songs, it's a bit lacklustre when you listen to it the next day, especially the way I was feeling after the night before. Then we just decided to spend our own money and go in and record a demo of Changing Mood, remember? And then we landed the deal. It became the single, got to number 10, not bad for your first single. Yeah. How did you all react to that? Gobsmacked. Gobsmacked, yeah. We'd done the single. We'd gone to Sydney and recorded with Ricky Fatar and Tim Kramer. Then we came back and the record company were loving it and they put us on tour with the models who were way ahead of us at the time. And we were driving to Brisbane in the Tarago and we got to somewhere in the middle of nowhere in up in New South Wales somewhere on the Bruce Highway and it came on the radio and we pulled over and we're dancing by the side of the road <laughs> that we heard our song on the radio. I remember that when it was released and I was living at Fairfield in a share house and I remember this thing called Top A Today on 3, 3XY. We'd ring up in the new releases and vote in your top eight of eight. And Kids in the Kitchen song had just been released as well. So I got my mum and all of the friends just to ring in, just like, you know, time after time, just voting in this song to get it also to help it get in the top eight of eight. So after a couple of nights in a row, we got a number one spot. I think that also helped it getting added to because the single kind of generated such a following with the young girls and boys. We became a kind of teen band straight off the bat of our look and our kind of dance fun attitude to what was going on. We had kind of that whispers of look of those bands coming out of England at that stage, you know, the Duran Durans and stuff, all the pretty boy stuff. So I guess um, that's kind of how it played out. In April 1984, Kids in the Kitchen returned with the second single, Bitter Desire, which gave them another hit, reaching number 17 on the ARIA singles chart. For a bunch of guys around their early 20s, coming up with a song like Bitter Desire, and the same goes for Changing Mood actually, was quite astonishing. These were top-end pop songs. I think Bitter Desire is a great track. Let's have a quick listen.
Yeah, that was bitter desire. And it's definitely more up than changing mood, especially in that brass-soaked breakdown midway through. But it did still feel like the same band, especially in those verses, which felt a bit closer in style to changing mood. Let's hear about Bitter Desire and how the band ended up losing two of its founding members during the process of that single being released. Okay, so after Changing Mood had become big top 10 hit, was there a lot of pressure to come up with Bitter Desire or did you guys already have that one up your sleeve? <laughs> no, we had a half-baked song. So what happened was the record label, we were looking for a producer for the song and uh, we got onto this guy called David Kirschenbaum. He was on the, on the list or something. Is that right, Bruce? Yeah, he was coming out and Mushroom at that time were getting producers to come out and then they were working them to the bone. They were coming out on package deals. Yeah, package deals. and Doing three or four bands while they're out here. We always thought that the song Something That You Said would be the next single and we had a demo of that and Kirschenbaum didn't like it and we had a half I think he came into our rehearsal space and we were messing, writing yeah, the song yeah, and ma- right. messing around that's with right. it. And he said, this is the one I want to do. And it had no lyrics. It had no lyrics. <laughs> it had no bass line. Yeah, it had a chorus. So he came into the rehearsal studio and we're just kind of fluffing around these new songs as we do write them in the studio. And it was a bit of the Zyre's chorus. He goes, hey, hey. Came in with a pink jumpsuit and, the, and his girlfriend, it looked like she's, you know, it went one too many parties. And then um, it came in and kind of, Classic American style, you know, pointing his finger, hey, yeah, I love that song. Yeah, let's got to do that one. It's like, uh, 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 okay, because he wasn't a fan of the other ones or something. And so we're in the studio kind of writing this song. Greg stole Craig's bass part for the main guitar part and Craig had no bass line. It was written, sort of written on the fly when we were putting the parts down. But they had the chorus. So it was this thing that was put together in the studio. It was a lot of pressure and um, – I remember writing lyrics in the studio, coming back to David, go, what do you think of this? Yeah, yeah. And I go back in. So the session for me was kind of nerve-wracking, you know. It's a, it's a lot to put young young people in, you know, a lot of pressure on. And um, But lo and behold, we came out with this great song. It was strange because most of our other songs, we'd played in the pubs at least 20 times by now when they were sort of tested, but that one was not. And we had a turnaround time, I think about a week to do the whole thing, wasn't it, from record to mix or something? Oh, I think it was only like a couple of days. But, yeah, look, the experience was kind of stressful and stuff, but we came out and we got our second single and at that point, you know, we had the first hit. The record company wanted another one. And they wanted another one, but it was like, come on, how about an album? We're missing out on these album sales. So Mushroom were a bit kind of frugal about taking the plunge and wanting to spend money in the early days. You know, they are kind of doing it on a drip feed. And so by the time the third single came out, which was something that you said, it was like, oh, shit, we've just missed out on, you know, thousands of record sales as well. We should have been there recording it straight after the first single, you know, so the album. Well, it could have been the case that they put out the second one because they were really only hoping that we'd get one or two out of us and then, then it was, looked like we were taking off. It's like, shit, now we don't have the album that we should have already been working on. But I don't think they anticipated it. But then at the same time, you ended up facing a bit of a lineup change with both of the Greggs deciding to leave at the same time. Did that throw a bit of a spanner in the works? What happened there? Oh, yeah. Oh, sure did. Yeah, sure did. And that was that was silly on their, their part because, you know, we had a first manager, Terry Rogers. Something happened where 
Greg and Greg talked us into using their mates, which were two managers, uh, become wanted to become managers. And basically we went, oh, yeah, okay, took those guys out of the wing at that stage. That was a bit of a debacle. We sat down to do a video for the second single uh, bit of desire. We sat down with the vi- video guys. There was talk that Keith Haring was coming out on a tour and we, and we said, look, can you get Keith Haring in to do some live graffiti because he was doing all those things like um, – the art center uh, loads of videos at that stage yeah yeah and we thought i'll oh, we'll get it that didn't eventuate and it got to the stage that on the video day because there was no kind of confirmation of that greg and greg took a stand without letting us know that they're not going to turn up to the video unless we got what we we were promised and so we were down at the video <laughs> shoot all in our kind of you know fabulous clothes waiting for greg and greg and they didn't show and it was like and then Kaninsky's kind of trying to try and negotiate it. And then it's like, nah, it's called off. The video's called off. And obviously that's coming out of our advance somewhere along the line. The second video, because we screwed up with the first video and blew the budget, we got like a modest budget where we just did a live, we're going to do a live video shoot in a soundstage thing. And, and it was just going to be a cheap version. Greg turned up and he was really lackluster at the video and didn't even move a muscle, so to speak. And so from that point, it was like Kaninsky and Bradby at that stage before he came the manager, but they just said to look, if you don't get rid of this guy, you've kind of lost your deal. So that put us in a really tough situation where we had to say to Greg, because they weren't team players at that stage. Greg was getting heavily influenced by these managers. And uh, I will say that that created a bit of a rift within the band because we weren't we weren't consolidated, you know, as young, you know, the thing, we were young kids too, you know, we were, people take advantage of the kind of, of your stupidity when you're young as well. So the situation was made that we had to get rid of them or we didn't have a record deal, so to speak. It was just like, oh God, this, this could all go south. I do get what Greg was talking about and I do get, I get that, but we weren't Fleetwood Mac. We couldn't pull call the shots. We had to get to a level where we had some, you know, recordings and some records and a career under our belt before we started kind of, you know, having hissy fits about stuff. And then we had to kind of suck it and see for the first bit. And I just, he just didn't get that. Yeah, those, those managers were just driving a wedge between them and us. And they were yeah, pissing in right. Greg and Greg's ear about we should be doing stadiums, not playing in these pissy little pubs. And we had one single up our sleeve. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. It would be another year before Kids in the Kitchen's next single, during which time the two Gregs were replaced by Claude Carranza on guitar and Alastair Coyer on keyboards. But something that you said finally emerged in April 1985. Let's take a listen. The guys were on a roll at this point of their career. Something that you said became their third consecutive top 20 hit single, peaking at number 19. I love the dramatic, elongated intro, and it's over the top and sensational. This was the song that turned me into a Kids in the Kitchen fan, and it has since remained a sentimental favourite. Let's go back to Bruce and Scott to hear the backstory to something that you said and how it all came together. How involved was someone like Michael Gadinsky in those early days? Oh, he, I think he's quite instrumental. He had these um, minions at that stage. Neil Bradbury, who ran the white label sector, which we were on, he'd be quite hands-on about decision-making and whatnot. But he left white label and became our manager. So that's how well we were doing, (laughs) you know, financially as well. If we signed to a major, maybe we would have got a bit more money thrown at us to do stuff or this and that. But the thing is, I think that they'd like to be under control a bit more. 
Mushroom did give us room to grow and let us grow, and it kind of, it was, you know, without kind of putting any heavy restraints on us. They didn't kind of, they never really dictated what we had to do musically or what we had to do with that side of it. We did have a pretty free reign in the early days about our creative direction. He certainly championed us, and uh, Molly Meldrum was championing us as well. You know, he came in and after the second single and really wanted to produce something that you said and. We went into the studio and did that and, you know, Meldrum and Gadinsky were sort of uh, big on getting that going because Ian was so enthusiastic about that particular song. Yeah, we um, yeah went up to 301 after Molly and Gadinsky coming into a backstage caravan before we, just before we went on to support police for their very last world tour. Remember that one? At the showgrounds in Melbourne. Yeah, we're already shooting ourselves. And then they, and then and then Molly comes in with Kinesi going. We've heard the the, the demo. Um, something you said. Molly wants to produce. It's like you could have come in after the show, not right five minutes before we're going on. Oh, we're already shooting ourselves. And they throw this at, this at us. Fifty thousand people. Yeah. Yeah, but it was a fun experience. We went up. Molly. Molly was like to see himself as a bit of a producer. Put on his producer's hat, and it was just bedlam. You know, we I think we night and day we recorded this thing, and he had everything on it. He had strings and horns, and you know, almost almost brought in the um. The Hare Krishnas, it wasn't far off it, but we had everything. So by the time we got back to Melbourne with that track, like Bruce is saying, we had to edit it down. It was a bit of a mess, but all the elements were there. But then um, our producer, who became our producer for the album or the rest of the album, Mark Berry, it was great. Bruce and Craig and the boys pulled it back in together and actually changed the feel of the song a bit more. And hence we ended up with this great song. Molly's name doesn't appear on the single. He didn't get a production credit. Is that because it changed so much? Yeah, I don't think he wanted at one stage he got it or he didn't want it or something. I don't know. I, don't, I can't remember. But I know that it didn't really work in our favour that much. He vowed he wouldn't push it on Countdown. Is that right? Because he had produced on it? Was it some sort of conflict of interest? Yeah, that's kind of, I think that's more the point. Isn't that Bruce? I think so. Yes. He didn't want the credit on the album. I don't think he had a bad taste in his mouth about anything. But he was, you know, it was pretty heady days for Molly too, you know, like he was peaking, he was zipping off and flying here and flying there and stuff. You know, he was a maniac. But the studio system, I remember coming off that having, having my first bout of bloody insomnia because I was just coming back out of that session so wound up that I couldn't relax, you know. It's like, oh, fuck. And the song itself, probably one of my favourite Kids in the Kitchen songs still to this day. It's a really great song. I probably didn't get the didn't get the chart success it should have, I thought. Was there a slight delay with getting that out? Was that due to the lineup change and having to audition then for a new guitarist? And how did you find Claude? Claude was the most unprepared last guy to come in on the audition. We had an audition day, right? So we had, and it's like, oh, God, we're going down this rabbit hole, you know? And we're in there shitting ourselves about finding the next Greg Dorman because Greg Dorman's quite the guitarist. You know, he had a quite a style, you know, that chicken plucking, great right hand, had an exceptional kind of magical sound. He he wasn't a great all-rounder, but he, with Kids in the Kitchen, he definitely delivered that sound. That was our big thing about replacing Greg, essentially. We knew that Greg Woodhead would probably be easily re- replaced. Although, once again, you know, that chemistry and stuff and the stuff that he did made that early part of the sound. So we went into the audition process, a long day. We kind of came in. I know that um, Alistair Coyer came in as a recommendation. Is that right, Bruce? Yeah, Craig had spied him a bit earlier. He'd been around the traps and seen him play and sort of had him in mind straight away. But he's an exceptional player. You know, he could play. He was more kind of traditional, like he could play up and down the piano and he really brought something something new to Kids in the Kitchen. But the story with Claude, which is great, is that we auditioned these guitarists and we just had having a terrible time. 
the last guy to come in who was completely unprepared, hadn't listened to the stuff, I don't think, much, but just came in and he plugged in. And as soon as he played the first two bars of what he was playing, we knew he was the guy. He was just exceptionally talented guitarist. And then with those songs, he took on Greg's part. On those songs like on the record, which he recorded something he said, even though Greg wrote those guitar parts and stuff, Claude took those guitar parts, played some of that, brought his own stuff to it. You know, Claude was the guy. He was a funkster. We, we wanted the funk guitar player and he's the, he was the guy, you know. Kids in the Kitchen version 2.0 kept the momentum going in 1985 with the release of their debut album and next single, both called Shine. The Russian-themed accompanying video clip to Shine was a big budget production that had machine guns, fireworks and an exploding helicopter. It was something else. Let's take a quick listen to the song for now. Despite the big push this song got with that music video, I think it's fairly uncontroversial to say that Shine wouldn't have been my pick for the next single, and it sputtered out at number 40 on the ARIA chart. But what did the band think of releasing this single? Let's find out. So things are back on track at this stage. You know, you got your lineup and you went in to finish the recording of the album. And as you mentioned, Mark Berry stepped in and he finished producing the LP. Did you have a preference to working with multiple producers up to that point? Or were you happy that Mark was sort of taking the lead and, and finishing the record? I personally thought that, you know, there was some great stuff that came out of those sessions, which eventually had a great, a great debut record. Then I thought there's elements of it that were quite overproduced. The reality was we felt we could produce it ourselves. And it was the record company kept pushing producers on us. We had a pretty clear idea of what we wanted to do. And they probably hated working with us because we didn't want to do anything they wanted to do. We wanted to, we had our own ideas. Craig was very forceful in those days about the way it should be and how it should sound. Did you get many of your points across? And did the record sound the way you wanted it to sound in the end? Pretty much. There was arguments over th- certain things, but I can't even remember what they were now minutest things. I remember Shine as a an album track. That was Barry. Yeah, it was Barry. So we, we had a song, it was called My Humble Accent, and it was pretty much half the record was written by the old lineup and the other half was written by the new lineup because we had those songs under our belt that we were gonna we were gonna record and um that song um Shine, which became was was Humble Accent, he didn't like the chorus because it wasn't a classic Here Comes the Chorus. It was a bit of a a wavering kind of, you know, dreamy chorus that didn't have a chorus sensibility. But he had a bit of a boner for the song. Loved that song and spent quite a bit of time on it, building it up to the point where he was pushing for it to be our fourth single. And I still, you know, I thought it was a good song and stuff, but I, I didn't think it was a single. But then it was like, let's do the video. Video was like a massive 40 grand on it or something like that. And it's a bit of a fizz up, to tell the truth. Countdown were doing, you know, the big unraveling, unveiling of this premiere event, and everyone was talking about it and whatnot. And it was a bit of a bit of hype going on, but the single card did fall short a little bit, I thought. No, I never thought it was like a single, but that was the push that Barry gave it. I thought the record was came out okay considering, but you know, it was it was a bit disjointed because we had three producers over, you know, the whole thing. The more obvious track to release from Shine was Big Ballad Current Stand. Well, obvious in the sense that it's a fantastic song and is many people's favourite Kids in the Kitchen song, including mine. But not so obvious, I guess, in that it was unlike any of their previous singles and may have been a bit of a gamble at the time. Let's take a listen. (laughs) 
I regard that song as an Aussie classic. It is a timeless pop song, in my opinion. Current Stand was released in August of 1985 and became another top 20 hit single for the band when it reached a chart peak of number 12. Let's go back to Bruce and Scott now to talk about what has gone on to become their signature track. Shine ended up getting released by mid-85, I believe, and goes on to become one of the highest-selling records of the year. I mean, went top 10, sold over 70,000 copies. Yeah, it was it was ticking along, and it was going okay. And then by that stage, there was a good hype about us, and then we released Current Stand, and that just pushed it over the edge. I think Current Stand was the song that pushed the album. And stuck around for a long time too. That was the thing with it. It's now become our kind of probably our biggest song, like on – Easily. Spotify and that kind of thing, you know, funny enough, which was written by the new lineup. So it just goes to show that changing a lineup doesn't necessarily mean it's the end of it. And it was quite a different sounding song compared to the other singles up to that point. I mean, did you guys see it as a risk releasing that big ballad or were you quietly confident this was going to do what it did? For me, it uh, seemed we'd put out all these tracks that were a little bit more up tempo. Maybe it was time to release a bit more of a ballady kind of thing. I thought the song was great off the right from the start. And for me, even now, I think it's the song on the album that still stands up as a great, a really great song. All the other songs sound really 80s, but Current Stand still sounds current to me now. But, yeah, for me, the moment I knew it was a really good song is that I thought it was an okay song in the studio recording it, and then Peter Sullivan came and did the string arrangement for it, and it's like, oh, my God. You know, I had that feeling when my hair's kind of stand out the back of my neck and I was like, oh, my God, it's like it just lifted the song to a whole nother level. Didn't Meldrum come in and organise the choir as well? Did he organise the choir? At that point I knew that I, I personally knew that I thought, wow, I'm not something here. That's the fifth single or something from that album. And there was still the sixth to go after that. I know. The Mushroom were just milking it. It went from gold to platinum so quick that we didn't receive our gold record. <laughs> So not that I'm big on accolades, but to this day, people come around and go, oh, you got a silver record. No, it's platinum. But there's no currency like a gold record in your old one the wall. So we never really got one of those. But I know that it sold way more than that. But, you know, I don't know what happened with the paperwork on that one. But because the album was hovering around for a long, long time, you know, after having, I think, the sixth single. We, we, for some reason, they went, went for a sixth single, didn't they? What was that? Was that My Life? My Life, yeah. On the strength of a ballad, they wanted another ballad, and we weren't very keen on releasing that at all. That's right. I think that we had an unofficial seventh single too, which was not the way, remember? Remember pushing that one as a, we went on Countdown and did not the way as a- That's right, we did as too. not a single, but an, but an album track. Gee, they really, they really milked us. As we heard, My Life was released as the sixth single from Shine and the band were kept busy touring in support of the platinum-selling album. But by June 1986, it was felt that the time was right for a brand new single from the band, this song, Out of Control. I always liked Out of Control. 
Again, it was another brass-drenched track, but it did feel like something new as well. Unfortunately, it underperformed on the chart, peaking at number 33, which, for a brand new song from a band who'd had four top 20 hits up until then, that would have been a disappointment for Kids in the Kitchen and their label. Scott and Bruce are going to talk about that now. We'd recorded probably three or so tracks. Surviving Years was one of the other tracks. Only Heaven Knows and Out of Control. And we kind of just, this is the start of the second album and we need to get a single out there to get, you know, so we don't lose any of the uh, momentum that we sort of had but was waning. And so that was put out as a next single. As a brand new Kids in the Kitchen song coming off Shine and all that success, number 33, National Peak for Out of Control, must have been a bit of a disappointment. Is that fair to say? Yeah, a little bit. I just wondered what you would put down the cause of that disappointing chart peak. <laughs> song's not that great. We liked it at the time and we, we'd sort of stopped touring so much. We'd milked Shine for everything it was worth and we were trying to write new songs and trying to get more material and those bunch of songs didn't really have the on-the-road rundown, the shakedown to see what worked and what didn't, could it be better? And so it was recorded without much of that. So the songs, they had some ideas in it that we liked, probably weren't executed as good as we may have liked later on, you know, but it's a slice of the time and a record of what we achieved on those days, you know. Because we were songwriters that, you know, spent time together in a rehearsal room coming up with ideas together generally. It's the way we did it, the way we always did it. We just didn't have, we were given that, that time to nurture the new songs. So it was kind of like, okay, we're going off the road to write and record an album for six weeks or something. And then so the pressure would be on. And then and coming off the road, the last thing you wanted to freaking do was worry, think about bloody writing a song. You wanted a holiday from the from the lifestyle and the, the touring. So I don't think we were nurtured very well. And, and I don't think it was really thought out very well. You know, there should have been the, it, it, there was so much money to be made from us that kind of, we were kind of burnt us out a little bit. And I think that's largely, the, you know, that's the one thing that's um, <laughs> the one regret I think that I had that we weren't nurtured the way we should have been. The lacklustre performance of Out of Control wasn't the only thing to cause an upset for Kids in the Kitchen in 1986. You'd think that being signed by Sire Records for international release would have been fantastic. Turns out it was the beginning of the end. The guys are going to talk about what happened when Kids in the Kitchen went to America, with Bruce explaining why he ended up leaving the lineup at this point. Molly was once again instrumental. I think uh, he was going overseas quite a lot and interviewing Madonna on Sire and Talking Heads and whatever what he did. And then um, I think that he took a couple of our records over or something like that and to Sire Records and kind of helped us. At that stage, you know, there's stuff coming out of Australia and people wanted to know what was going on. And I think that was probably with help from Molly that we landed with the Sire deal. What kind of push did you get from them? Oh, we got pushed. Don't know why we got pushed. We got loads of kind of unforgivable things happened with those guys. They were kind of, um, I guess they were trying to mould us, doing what they're doing. You know, we had we had a record. They went over there and they wanted to, you know, repackage us and put us together with writers and stuff like that. We got over there and they wanted to change the band's lineup around and stuff like that. And it's just like that was more Neil Bradbury. But there's lots of shenanigans going on and it's just – it was quite disastrous, I thought, in some respects, signing to America at that stage. Basically, it just split up the band 
and caused rifts within the band. And then they were sort of sitting, um, did a promotional tour over there and, and we, you know, had hip clip of the week and stuff on, on MTV and did a showcase show at the Cat Club and whatnot. But we didn't get any major tour push or support. I don't know, it's a couple, just a lot of weird things happened while we were there at that time and it weren't working in our favour. But then we sent us off to, well, we want to get you get some other writers. And it's like, hey, we've already, got, we've already written these great songs, we bring it over to you, and that's why you sign us. And now they want to start putting it together with other writers. They sent Al Sequoia, the keyboard player, off and me to write a couple of songs. One was Say It, and the other one was Revolution Love on that album. Been a small fortune, the label over there on recording them and stuff. While the other guys in Australia are going, what are we doing? So they went off and recorded stuff too. So Claude and Craig and went off and, and, and started recording songs with Claude singing. So it was just really disjointed, you know. Like suddenly we're kind of back in the ballpark of this first album where we kind of got three different producers, but somehow it kind of we got an album out of it. And by then we were kind of a bit burnt out, I think, to tell the truth. We were kind of a bit, you know, a bit over the shenanigans and that's kind of when things started, the wheels started falling off. Bruce, I don't know what you want to say about your departure from the band at this point. Oh, look, yeah, I was my own worst enemy. You know, I should have been working on my skills as a drummer and I was enjoying the accolades of being a pop star and and not doing the hard yards to get better, you know. We started as a bunch of kids that really were learning to play and I probably didn't put in enough effort and, and there was this whole push, we're going to America and we need to be really shit hot. We've got to really lift our game. And uh, Neil Bradbury and I think Alistair probably had a lot to do with sowing the seed of picking up a, a much better drummer over there. And so that's what they did. We, I jumped on a plane and went over there with the guys and when I got there it was like, thanks for coming, enjoy a holiday while you're here. But we're going to yeah that was that was really fucked i gotta say that, <laughs> the whole thing yeah yeah it's just it's just like what the fuck so i'm in la and by the way uh thanks for coming and now uh you'll have to pay your own way from now that's kind of neil bradbury's fucking thinking but i reckon neil was trying to pull alice and i away from kids and then kind of have us even though the record company wanted to get put together with writers and stuff over there and do say it and revolution love that it's kind of like they had a, a hidden agenda, like chess pieces. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's right. We can, kind of, yeah, we, we pushed around a bit, and after that stuff happened with Bruce, it was like you know, it's a pretty terrible thing to have happen to you, and um, especially being an original member. But there's loads of other things that I, I, I'm personally regretful of that I shouldn't have allowed to happen. You know, I should have stepped up and said, "Nah, no, I don't, don't want to do that." But that was the '80s. You know, you kind of got sucked into the vortex of what everyone wanted to do, and on your behalf, and you kind of went, oh, yeah, okay. That's the regretful part of it. Now, Alistair also left anyway, and then for Terrain, when the, by the time the album came out, it was, Scott, it was you, Craig, and Claude. Claude was singing on track. So how did you take that, that Claude was being vocalist? Um, I was cool about it. Were you? Yeah, yeah. I, I wasn't really worried. I wasn't kind of – I think Craig and Claude thought, well, let's write some songs while they're over there writing songs. And then they kind of got some great songs. And – it didn't really bother me. I didn't kind of get egotistically, you know, upset by it or anything like that. I just went, oh, okay. But I kind of, some, a few times I thought to myself, I didn't really get it until I really kind of got into the songs. I'm like, well, these are great songs. Claude's sometimes reluctant about doing the songs at our shows these days, but we actually bent his arm on the gig we've got coming up at the corner and um, he's going to do one of the songs that he wrote and recorded while I was overseas. So that's great. 
Despite all the drama overseas, Kids in the Kitchen came away with their next single, a song that I thought was a great progression from early 80s Kids in the Kitchen to 1987 Kids in the Kitchen, and it was a song called Say It. For me, Say It rivals Current Stand as my favourite Kids in the Kitchen song, and I could never understand why it wasn't a massive hit that restored them to their place as one of Australia's biggest bands. It continued the evolution of their sound from out of control into a slickly produced pop synth rock sound. Sadly, when it came out in August 1987, it only managed to do slightly better than Out of Control, reaching number 31. I concur, Gavin. Say It was followed by the next single, Revolution Love, in November of 1987, and this song would peak at number 44 on the chart. Again, I really liked Revolution Love and I went out and bought the album Terrain on the strength of it and Say It. And I really couldn't understand why the singles weren't connecting with a wider audience. Scott and Bruce are going to discuss the songs and the accompanying album now. Say It, it sounded like a hit. Was everyone happy with, yep, let's put this out, let's relaunch Kids in the Kitchen? Oh, I don't know about relaunching. I just think it was the next, it was just like a bunch of songs we wrote and then it was like, um, then they sound they sound expensive. Recorded at Skyline Studios, a studio belonged to um, uh, Niall Rogers at the time, with Richard Goddera, who was a um, producer for Blondie and stuff in the early days, and his friend of Seymour Stein's. So he got the gig, and um, he wasn't the greatest producers, but he he put together a really great team, the Musos. So that experience was a lot of fun, and the song itself, you know, we went off and wrote with a guy that wrote "Open Your Heart" with Madonna, Gardner Cole, I believe. He was. Loads of fun. Basically, sounds if you listen to that song and the baseline of that song, listen to the baseline and, and say it, you kind of go that moving baseline. You go, well, it's almost the same song anyway. The drum programmer who did or drummer from Cameo was the, did the drums on it, and um, some really great music. So the experience was great, fun. That part of it, the recording side of it, was fun to know. And, and then you know had some BV singers come in and do all the the hey hey hey's and oohs and ahs, and it was like. Uh, bit of a current stand moment where, you know, you go, wow, this has kind of come up pretty well. I'm really quite surprised. But, you know, it would have cost a bomb. But I didn't, didn't really didn't think much of Revolution Love. That was written by, with the other guy, his other guy. I mean, Alice and I went over and on their two left feet. No, I just didn't think much of that, that same session. They're quite different sounding songs. But somehow we kind of pulled it together, which was which was great. And then we came back and then at that stage, the band, was, I didn't know what the band was going to do. I think we were almost like in break-up mode. We thought, we'll just <laughs> put this thing out and do some gigs and, and blah, blah, blah. Kind of the wind was kind of out in sail a little bit, I must say, and then uh, released the record. But look, there's some great songs on that album, you know. I think some fun cover hidden gems. You know, again, disappointing chart performances for Say It and Revolution Love. On top of all the shenanigans in America, was that just kind of like how many blows could the band take? Mushroom had um, pretty much decided that they weren't going to promote it for who knows what reason. They never pushed it at all. 
it just wasn't the same. When we came back and three of us were on the album cover for the second album cover, but, you know, Bruce was on most of the recordings and the whole disjointed thing, there wasn't, we were trying to get it, trying to resurrect it, get it going and stuff, but I just don't think our heart and souls were really in it at that point. And then, you know, going on the road with other people, it was fun for a while, but then it was like, it was just to me, just going on the road was the last thing I wanted to do, you know. We weren't on anybody's lips anymore and... No. By this point, the writing really was on the wall for Kids in the Kitchen, especially when Scott Kahn became involved with another project. Scott would join forces with fellow musicians David Hicks, Matt Sanford, Graham Thomas and Chris Wilson to form the rockabilly band Priscilla's Nightmare. Their sound was inspired by the music of the 50s and 60s and most notably Elvis Presley. Get it? Priscilla's Nightmare? The collective released a self-titled album in 1989 that was preceded by the single She Ain't No Woman. She ain't no woman, she's an angel. She ain't no woman at all. All I wanna do is please her. No woman ever looked like that before. After that detour, Scott embarked on a solo career, although, as he's going to admit, it was a bit of a half-hearted effort. Two singles were released, All I Wanna Do and Freedom, but neither saw any major chart action. Let's hear those songs, and then Scott will talk about his post-Kids in the Kitchen projects. Kids in the Kitchen, Mark Three, we're kind of winding out a bit, and we're doing doing shows and working, you know, six nights a week. And the houses probably weren't as big, and during the other control period, second album period, we had you know different drummers, different keyboard players, overworked, underpaid, and I think that was starting to sink home a bit for me. You know, I kind of come home, come back off tour, even during the glory days, come back off tour, and I still still couldn't somehow work pay my rent, and I started. I think the penny started to drop, and I was getting really pissed off about it. Just the fame wasn't fun anymore, so the money had to be the, the thing that kind of got me through. And then I was offered this gig at um, Inflation. They said, look, you want to put together something and um, and it will give you this amount of money. I went, like, what? This amount of money? Great. You know, there wasn't any managers involved. You know, I had a bit of a buzz on Elvis, and I thought, oh, I'll just put together a bit of an Elvis, rock, a bit of a rockabilly cover band. So Priscilla's Nightmare was born, and we did a you know residency there for – what seemed to be a year, I think that was the end of kids because I was like going, shit, I was making all this money on one gig a week. I could start living the dream a bit. A bit of hysteria around the band and stuff like that. And then Molly obviously came in and goes, oh, you guys got to record something, blah, blah, blah. So we went off and did an EP with a you know, great bunch of guys and um, had a lot of fun doing it. One of my stupid um, stupid decisions though was one of the guys, some guy came in from Las Vegas, so I, I think he was looking after one of the, the big casinos there and came and said, look, I want to take you guys back and do a residency in Vegas. I said, no, I'm not doing this very long. I'm going off to do a solo career. That was the one one thing I wish that I didn't say. I uh, would have loved to do a stint in Vegas doing some Elvis covers. And then I went off and did the famous um, solo record. Well, a couple of solo singles. I didn't really know. You know. And once again, I didn't really know what I was, wanted to do. So I just went off and wrote some songs to some people and went over there and recorded some and landed on the Summer of Love in the 90s and had too much of a good time and recorded a couple of songs. Uh, Freedom was quite a good song, I thought. And the, the other song was something written in this kind of 
I took over, but it turned into a bit of a Stone Roses is kind of song. Is that the kind of music that was inspiring you at the time? Were you listening to stuff like Stone Roses, Happy Mondays? Yeah, yeah, I was loving all that stuff. I didn't was didn't really want to sign, but when the band kind of dissolved, there's a debt, and my for some reason my, my name was on the as one of the directors, and so there's a, there's a debt of like thirty thousand dollars or something in the eighties that had to be paid, and um, and I ended up signing a publishing deal and. And getting an advance on that, which went pretty much to closing down the kid in the kitchen stuff. Then I just stayed over there. I didn't even like coming back to promote it. So it kind of died in the ass a little bit. But at that point, I was like, oh, I'm kind of done with it. I just need a time out. When I started out, I was kind of 17 and a half, 18 or something. So by the time it all pitted out, I was like, oh, I was ready for bed, you know, just burnt out. So I just kind of took time off, traveled, bummed around. Then the 90s came along when you couldn't get arrested. Yeah. And that was it. These days, at least four members of the classic lineup of Kids in the Kitchen continue to keep the dream alive by playing together at least once a year. I saw the guys a year ago at the iconic Corner Hotel in Melbourne, and the entire show was flawless. They look and sound great. They have another one-off gig coming up in October again this year, also at the Corner Hotel, and I recommend for anyone who was a fan and still enjoys listening to their music, do not hesitate going to see the boys live. They are killing it. Let's go back to Bruce and Scott one last time to hear about what keeps them coming back for more. What's the chemistry like now? Just it's just great. Kind of a bit cathartic for me. It's like the fans, the whole thing. It's a, a great way to catch up and see each other as well. And um, and everyone's playing really great. It's just fun. You know, it's a bit of a challenge because you know you want to sound as close to the record as you can. I think that's personally, I'm not into these unplugged versions or these extended versions that take away from the original sound. I like to get back in the time machine, and that's for me. That's what that period for me was all about. I've been meaning to talk to you about that. I thought we could do some real slow versions of our songs and stripped back something that you said. Yeah, yeah maybe not. That's why we do it now. It's fun, you know, and it's for the fans. So. Most of the fans that are in the front row now were in the front row when they were 15. That's the big thank you card, just giving it back and having a bit of fun, you know. How about for you, Bruce? Oh, it's just cathartic for me as well, you know, being kicked out of the band and then being invited to come and be the, in the band again. Is, that's been great for me and being a much better player than I ever was and uh, and catching up with my old mates. is like All of the stuff is water under the bridge and... and yeah, we're just in it for a bit of fun now and don't have to worry about anything. It's like, it's not my day job. You go in and enjoy it for what it is. But it is kind of full circle. And for me, it's like you know, having the same faces around. We, we started Bruce and Craig and we started out together and then Claude's it's still there. And sometimes when Claude can't do the show, Greg Dorman comes and does the show as well. So it's an open door policy. I mean, you know, I like to see Alistair back and playing keys occasionally and doing stuff, but he, he's just not interested in playing keyboards. So it's not that he's got a sour taste in his mouth about anything. It's just not his thing. I get to say when people ask me, oh, weren't you the drummer in Kids in the Kitchen? I get to say, still am. If only they'd play in Sydney. It's been great to look back at the musical career of Kids in the Kitchen, though, who were one of my favourite Australian bands in the 80s. I've spoken to Scott a couple of times in the past and he's always very open and honest about his experiences and it was nice to hear from Bruce to round out the story as well this time. Would have been good to hear Claude and Craig's memories and to ask about this. Carl 
Kylie Minogue and Glad to Be Alive, only the B-side to the highest selling single in Australia in 1987, Locomotion. Craig and Claude co-wrote the song and even performed on it. I regard that as an iconic and very cute song that incidentally gets a lot of airplay on my radio show, especially when we do Kylie specials. Turn the beat around, don't forget listeners, goes to air every Friday night from 8pm Melbourne time on Joy 94.9. Gavin, for me, that was also a really, really good episode. I really enjoyed reminiscing about Kids in the Kitchen. Like yourself, they were one of my favourite Aussie bands back in the 80s, and I love listening to their music to this day. Their stuff has just aged very, very well, in my opinion. All those producers. Coming up next on A Journey Through Aussie Pop, we're going to jump into the 90s to hear from this guy. Hi, folks. This is Rick Price, and I'm talking to Chartbeats about my journey through pop. Yes, Rick Price coming up in the next episode in conversation with Robbie Molinari. Until then, as well as listening to Robbie's show, you can find me at Chartbeats AU on Insta, Twitter, Threads, and Facebook. And Robbie? You went onto Threads. Did you do it? I did. I mean, I'm there. I'm not doing okay. that much. <laughs> it's happening slowly. You can also catch me all over the socials. I'm at uh, Joy Turn Beat Around on Insta and X and uh, Turn the Beat Around on Joy on Facebook. And the full interview with Scott and Bruce is in the bonus material. Head to chartbeats.com.au slash Aussie where you can subscribe to listen to all the bonus material for all the episodes across our two seasons. Thanks for listening. See you in a couple of weeks. Bye, Robbie. See you later, Gavin. Listener.